0: might make just to be sure it wasn't taken wrongly. It probably was not meant this way, but it could have sounded this way. That was a statement that um, Bathsheba wasn't there by accident, and God used that to try David. I would agree. I'm not sure that's the exact wording. That's what I kind of wrote down as a a thought, but it's close to that. Uh, No, it was not an accident. She did it on purpose. She had in mind exactly what happened, or she wouldn't have done it that way. You know, if you know that you are in a housing district, and maybe the king's palace is above, and there's a wall there that he looks out over, or whatever the configuration was, uh, if you take a bath on top of the house in a housing district or subdivision, you are in grave danger of being seen. And it's not something you don't do without planning. So her husband was gone to war, and she had some ideas, and she literally seduced the king. And he was quite willing to be seduced. So, yeah, God used it to punish but God tempts no man, is the point I want to make. God did not cause her to come out there and do that. She did that on her own. Now, to say the devil made me do it, maybe there's some complicity, because Satan will help us put thoughts into our mind. But to say God made me do it, no, no. <laughs> he doesn't do that. If we sin, it's because of us and maybe Satan egging us on. And also the statement that he caused his best friend to be uh, killed then. I I don't know of any uh, indication that Uriah was a best friend by any means. If he had, then that makes the plot thicken anyway, because if he was close to that family and got involved with Bathsheba, where did she get that name? Uh, Did she have that before the bath? I don't know. It's a strange coincidence if it is. But the the scripture is very clear that Jonathan was David's best friend. They were closer than man and woman, not in a perverted way, but the camaraderie and the closeness as brothers was there. So just a couple of little clarifications. As I said, the message certainly was right and certainly was good, but I want to be sure we don't misunderstand <clears throat> the whole thing. All right, let's get into... A short sermon for today we've probably heard nearly enough and we've certainly sat more than enough Uh, so I'll try not to make this too long what do we have left anyway well it's quite a little really but since we looked at the new heavens and new earth and we see that that truly is something that comes at the beginning of the Millennium we had thought the new heavens and new earth came after the great white throne judgment after a burning of the earth, which clearly in context is not the case. And the scriptures we read in Isaiah 65 about the sinner and the baby and all those things referring to the millennium, uh, when the new heavens and new earth come, because Isaiah 65 is in the context of the new heavens and new earth, as is Isaiah 66. So if the things that we read in Isaiah 65 and 6 are about the millennium, what's left for the last great day? uh, We need to understand. Let's go, (coughs) first of all, to Revelation 20 and see what's left to talk about in terms of the great white throne judgment or last great day. (laughs) The only place that it's called, the great white throne, and we've adapted judgment because it is in terms of judgment, is in Revelation 20. Let's look at this in terms of the order of the resurrections and be sure we understand. This is an inset chapter that goes through and shows the order of the resurrection. you remember now that Paul said there was more than one resurrection? He said, each man in his own order. So there is more than one, and that is confirmed here in Revelation 20. Revelation 20 had not been written when Paul made that statement, but he was very aware that there was more than one resurrection. And I think Romans 11:26, where he said, all Israel shall be saved, is an, in, another indication of that because Israel had lived and died for generations before Paul was ever there. So him for him to say that indicated that he must have known that there is a retroactive resurrection of some kind that allows those people to have opportunity at salvation. So the little keys and indications here, in the, here and there in the scriptures of another resurrection. Uh, but let's pick it up here and then see a little more of that later. I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. The bottomless pit a chasm, a pit that is bottomless, is very large, in other words, reminiscent of Leviticus 16, of the fit man binding the Azazel and carrying him out into the wilderness where he would be alone. Solitary confinement, if you will. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. Now this is specifically of Satan, We know that in Peter, there's an indication that some of the demons were also bound, uh, apparently at the time of Noah and the ark. So God has restrained the demons from time to time, and some of them, if not all of them, there's not a complete history of that or a log of it in the Bible, but little indications that Satan and the demons are somewhat restrained. Now this shows that Satan himself will be bound a thousand years and you would have to assume then that the demons would be with him because his demons have been uh, inhabiting people uh, throughout mankind's history and Christ and the apostles cast demons out. I've seen demons cast out in this age as well where they were clearly inhabiting people and have been involved in it. I know what it is about and what it's like, and it is not pleasant. But they also have to be bound, or they would be here molesting mankind during the millennium. So they can't be around either. But Satan is the leader, and it mentions him specifically, exactly whether or not they are with him or not, or how they are restrained is not covered in technical detail, but it's kind of like uh, the resurrection, as Paul said. Some will ask, well, how does he do this? It doesn't really matter as long as it occurs exactly how God does it, nor does it matter exactly where and how the demons are bound. The net result is they can't affect mankind, and that's bottom line. Anyway, cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him, like you seal an envelope. He couldn't get out. That he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. So we know from Revelation 10 again that we are to live and reign with Christ the thousand years, that his kingdom will be set up on the earth. Hebrews 4 talks about how the weekly Sabbath is a type of the millennial Sabbath, a day, the weekly Sabbath then being the same as a thousand years. So the the typology, the symbolism of the weekly Sabbath is of this period of time, when we devote the Sabbath to God, and during that time when people devote their lives to God for a millennium. That is why it is so important that we don't think our own thoughts, seek our own pleasures, do our own thing on the Sabbath day, because it's the day that is set aside, not like the other six, not like the first 6,000 years, if you will, where mankind has done his pleasure, done his way, but it's a Sabbath set aside for God and to seek God. It's not a day to be playing games on uh, electronic means, it's not a day to be watching TV or playing golf or writing four-wheelers or, you know, whatever your pleasure might be, reading novels. Uh, some people say, well, I'm not working, so I can do this, that, or the other thing. No, it says seek your own pleasures, or not to seek your own pleasures, or do your own thing. It is a day to devote to God. Physical rest and spiritual rest from the things of this world is what Isaiah 58 says. So, in like manner, the millennium will be a time of peace, prosperity, love, joy, uh, and mankind will seek God during that 7,000 years and live his way for a change. So we should make each Sabbath a little microcosm of the peace and prosperity of the future. That's what it typifies. Hebrews 4 is very clear on that. So Satan is bound for that thousand years, and at the end of the millennium then, he is loosed for a little season. That will be commented on further down. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them, And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Emmanuel and for the Word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So those of us who stand against Satan's society and culture, and stand up for God, and don't accept Satan's way, will be given opportunity to rule the earth as the illumined ones, as the elite ones, as the bride of Christ himself, as a mother to the world. (coughs) But the rest of the dead live not again until the thousand years were finished. This then is the completion or a description of the first resurrection. So when Christ returns, he was the first fruits, first one that went to his Father, and we are those firstfruits who come after and go back with him to the Father for the marriage and the honeymoon. So there are only 144,000 in that resurrection because it says they live and reign with Christ a thousand years. That leaves out the innumerable multitude of Revelation 7 or 14, where both those chapters describe the 144,000. That's a different subject. I don't want to go there. Uh, but I think that those, that innumerable multitude, well, it does fit in, by the way. Uh, I think they will be in the second resurrection or the great white throne judgment. Uh, the first resurrection is limited to the bride. She goes with her husband-to-be, the throne of God and is married there. The rest live into the millennium, or they come up as an innumerable multitude after the millennium. That seems to be the sense of that scripture. Anyway, blessed and holy is he that has part in the first resurrection, on such the second death has no power made incorruptible and immortal, as First Corinthians 15 points out, and we read. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. <clears throat> and when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison, and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about in the beloved city, that would be Jerusalem, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. So Satan is going to be, at least as we have traditionally understood, released for a short period toward the end of the millennium, or at the end to deceive anyone who is willing to be deceived and it sounds like there will be quite a number, sand of the sea, uh, who listen to him. Isn't it incredible how people could live God's way a thousand years and have peace, prosperity, no war, no famines, no need, no unemployment, (laughs) you know, on and on it goes happy families, and then be so utterly and so quickly deceived. Satan is far more powerful than we even begin to give him credit for. Look at Adam and Eve and how quickly he was able to turn them completely around. Do not underestimate our enemy, but flee from him. Draw near to God, and he will flee from you. Resist the devil, as Peter says. But these people are going to find him irresistible. They'll be deceived so very quickly, and think. See, his mind hasn't changed. He'll, He'll have a thousand years to think about this, okay? Where he's chained up, solitary confinement, unless it's his demons with him, I don't know whether God is going to give him total solitary confinement or make him live (laughs) with his cohorts. That might even be worse. But he still has the same attitude is where I was headed when he comes out as when he went in. He still wants to turn people against God and cause them to fight God and try to destroy Jerusalem and the headquarters of God. Now, he's gone to the headquarters of God before and tried to destroy it. Now, if the headquarters of God were still in heaven at this point, the end of the millennium, and it won't be, it will have been here since the beginning of the millennium, if it were still up there, why would he try to destroy it here? It's here. And it is people that he deceives, this time not demons, to try to go and destroy Jerusalem. And the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beasts and false prophets were, it should read, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now there are people who think Satan and his demons are going to be forgiven. It does not sound like it here, does it? There's that universal salvation thing they've brought up. All people, and even Satan and the demons, are going to be saved before it's over. I question that highly based on some statements like this one. That's a judgment that has already been rendered. It's been written down by God. Now, if he has some amendment to make to that, that's his business, but I'm going to go with what the Scripture says myself. So, he's released a little while, he deceives a lot of people, goes and fights God, and then is bound again. And he stays there forevermore. He will never ever again, according to this statement, be released. That's good news. So then, next, he says in verse 11, I saw a great white throne... And him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was no place found for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, important people, unimportant people, stand before God. The books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Works when? Back when they were human beings? When they didn't know God? When they did not understand God? Why even resurrect and bother them with it if they had not had, if they had had an opportunity at salvation? What about babies that were born in the past? Are they going to be judged by their works? What if they only lived today? day? There are no works. There's no history there to judge. They came to life and died. So very obviously, this statement is inclusive of a period of time where works can be shown, a period of judgment. Is God judging you and I, or me, today only? Or yesterday only? What if he picked a bad day for you or me? To judge us. No, our judgment is spread over a period of time when we're given space to repent, opportunity to grow, opportunity to change, to be more like Christ, to perform good works, to do service to our brethren and others, and then he will be judging us based on how we treat others, forgiveness, mercy, love, not condemning, will be judged on those things. And he would be less than fair if he did not offer that opportunity to others. Let's go on. According to the works, and the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and the grave delivered up the dead which were in them. So this is a general resurrection. It's not a specific resurrection of a certain number like the 144,000, but this is the grave, the sea, uh, everybody. And they were judged every man according to their works. And death and the grave were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So we saw here a first resurrection and those who were in it lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Then we see a deception at the end of the millennium of people who were there, and Satan then being bound. Then there is a great white throne judgment, where Christ is going to sit on his throne and make judgments of people who are resurrected at that time. Now once that judgment is made, Anyone found wanting is cast into the lake of fire, burned up, forgotten, and we move on. That seems to be the picture. Now, let's go back to Isaiah 65. Now, we covered this yesterday, and it was part of showing that the new heavens and new earth are come down at the beginning of the millennium, and that these passages we read about the great white throne judgment are not necessarily that, but to part of the proof of Isaiah 65 is not, is that, is uh, that, The new heavens and new earth don't come after the millennium and the great white throne judgment and the earth being burned completely in the universe by fire. We use this to show that there would still be human beings living on the earth and that it begins at the end of the day of the Lord, as as, uh, Peter puts it, and so on and so forth. The end time events lead to the destruction of mankind and the cleansing of the earth and that cleansing continues in the millennium with the waters coming out from the throne of God to heal the nations, to heal the peoples. So definitely human beings. And I said there will still be people here. They'll have offspring and so on as we saw in verse 23. And it indicates in verse 20, there should be no more tense an infant of days nor an old man that has not filled his days. For the child shall die a hundred years old, but the sinner being a hundred years old shall be accursed. So people being born as flesh during the millennium, uh, apparently from this will live a hundred years. Whether they were an old man at the time they lived through the tribulation, or whether they're a child born there, they have a hundred years. And their judgment then is of a 100-year time period or lifetime based on the works that they produce during the millennium. Now, some will not produce the right fruits. There will be marshes where the waters are not healed. Some people here and there, little groups maybe, will not. And then there will be a great rebellion as the sand of the sea there at the end of the millennium, and those people will be destroyed. They will have had their chance during the millennium. Is when they will have had it. And they will be tested at the end. Satan loosed on them. In some respects, is it fair for us to have had to have dealt with Satan and them never to have to? On the other hand, our reward is higher. And yet God is going to lose Satan on them for a short while at the end of the millennium. Maybe they'll be fence-sitters or people who have not gone the right way, and that will be his way of separating the wheat from the tares. But it does appear that the lifetime during the millennium, the beginning of the new heavens and the new earth, will be a hundred years of judgment for those people. You and I might not get quite that long. We only live 70, 80, 90 years for the most part. And yet, on the other hand, we have quite a period of time as converted Christians to show which way we will go. Now, let's consider this. We have always use this to show that the great white throne judgment will be a hundred years. Remember, it says there, when they come up, they're judged by their works. So there has to be a period of time for these people who come up then in that second or general resurrection to show which way they'll go. If they were a baby when they died, they'll have a period of time. If they were older when they died, or middle-aged, or teenage when they died, They will have a period of time to come to know and accept and live God's way and produce fruits, meet for repentance and righteousness and eternal life. I think that verse 20 could possibly be used as an indication of how long the last great day or the great white throne judgment would be. And I say that for this reason: it is clearly referring to the beginning of the millennium, because babies will be being born, and people will be living a regular life cycle of a hundred years. They will probably either die. Says they'll die a hundred years of age. Will they be changed at that point, or will they lie in the grave till the end of the millennium? and be resurrected then? The answers to that are not necessarily given here. When will their change come? It may be that that change will not come until the end of the great white throne judgment and there will be a final resurrection for those who have obeyed during the millennium and the great white throne judgment. They would be changed at that point and the wicked would be thrown into the lake of fire. Now that might be where it says Christ will sit down and judge between the sheep and the goats and say, you go this way, you go that way. Uh, this is just a new thought to me. Is it possible at the end of the great white throne judgment is when that occurs? It's when the separation is made. The judgment would have already been rendered during the millennium based on their works, or in the Great White Throne Judgment, based on their works, and then the final separation, if the dead all came up, in that resurrection at that time, which we have called the third resurrection, what about the people in the Millennium Great White Throne Judgment? We've never adequately answered when they would be changed, when they would receive their reward, have we? We speculated maybe instead of dying they'd be changed. And yet it says here, they die die 100 years old. That didn't sound like a change to me. What's change, all right. Life to death. I want to think about this one a little bit and compare some scriptures. I, that, that just came to me here as a possibility that uh, that might be the time. Because that's always been a bit of a quandary in my mind, to talk about Christ separating the sheep from the goats. So the Protestants assume that when he comes back, no matter what you've been on this earth, uh, you're just going to be judged right then. Well, if he if he based that judgment on people who were there at that time and the life they've lived in this world, there'd be a lot of people going to hell. Or the grave or the well, to hell, yeah. Go in a fire. That's what the word means. I want to want to think about this a little bit more and study it. But, if he gives the people in the millennium a hundred years, whether they were a baby when it started or whether they were older, is that a, an insight into God's mind? If he's going to give this group of people a hundred years, would he also give those people in the great white throne judgment a like period of time, a hundred years? I think that that would make sense, because God is fair and even-handed, uh, This is the only scripture that talks about a hundred years, period. And it is clearly in context speaking of the beginning of the millennium. But it might be that it carries through. So you have the thousand years, Satan released, deceives, millennium ends. Then this general resurrection of people who have lived and died and never had a chance from Adam until the beginning of the millennium who had died. Now, Christ did say, did he not, that they are taken ensnared, and deceived so that they cannot understand. Their eyes and their ears have been made dull of seeing and hearing. So what he's saying is, if all the people of the earth today understood the truth, really understood it, their judgment would have to be rendered here and now, or when he returns. But since they are taken and snared and deceived, he's being merciful. He's saying, since you didn't know, I can't condemn you. Now, when they come up in the great white throne judgment, and everybody has to have a chance, don't they? Otherwise, God's not there. What about the babies that died? they got to have a chance. Well, there's no resurrection that fits them until... The great white throne judgment starts. So it is not an immediate thing where the great white throne appears and all these people come up and start sorting and throwing them left and right. It's a time where they are judged by their works which if they were a baby there have been none, good or bad. So there has to be a period of time for all of your relatives, friends, acquaintances of the world who have died never had a chance. <clears throat> Most of our relatives are in that category. Deceived, do not understand, cannot understand, no matter how hard you've tried to convince them. They didn't get it and they thought you're nuts. You're not, but they thought so and or think so to this day. That's okay. You're having your chance now. And if we're successful in our chance, we'll be around to help them learn and help them with their chance. And they will have been humbled by death and destruction. And then you'll say, here I am, because you will be God. And they'll say, wow, look at you. Maybe you were right after all. Would you repeat that, what you told me? Back then, when we were sitting in your living room, I want to hear that. This is the result. I think I'll have some of that. Attitude will be a lot different, won't it, when they come up then. I want to be there. I think that will be a very exciting time. My aunts, my uncles, some of my grandparents, various ones that persecuted us when I was just a child for leaving the Methodist Church and joining this really strange radio preacher. Not coming to the Lord's Day anymore. Wouldn't go to their Christmas parties and all that. We were castaways from the family, really. Ridiculous when we would meet poor. I remember my uncle one time trying to pawn shrimp off his chicken on me. And I was, what, 10, 11 years old? I think I even tasted it. I didn't didn't know. He deceived me. That rascal. He and I are going to have words. Out of love and kindness, but pointedly, I think. Maybe my attitude will change by then. (laughs) But I think it will be kind of fun. Don't you think Joseph kind of enjoyed it when his brothers came begging for food? You dirty rats. And then he put their money back in their sack and hauled their butts back in there. I'm a preacher. I shouldn't say things like that, should I? Oh, well. And then he jerked their chain for a while. Even when they came back, and he sat them down at his house and dinner, still didn't tell them who he was. I bet he enjoyed that greatly. But then he wept and cried when he finally revealed who he was, because he did love his brothers, but he had his little moment of fun with tongue-in-cheek with them. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, but that was still pretty sweet. Where am I here? Um, The hundred years, it's going to be different during that time. This is strictly, truly millennial because of babies being born and your offspring and so on during that period of time. However, there has to come a time when the baby production is shut down. Otherwise, the plan has to keep going. Would you quit having kids? We've got to end this thing somewhere. Apparently, during the second resurrection or the great white throne judgment, there are not children being born. Uh, Whether you're a baby or an older person, when you're resurrected during that period of time, uh, the child production will be cut off. The judgment will will be rendered on those people as they live that period of life. I don't know exactly how it'll be, but let's get a little bit of insight into that. All I'm saying here is that the carryover of the hundred years might be a possible uh, indication of how long the Great White Throne Judgment will be. We use this exclusively for that, knowing that millennium was a thousand years, and we never had an answer about how long people would live in the millennium. We thought maybe they'd they'd grow to a certain point and then. They'd be changed over. Just why would you die during that time? Or would they live a thousand years and changed at the end of it? Well, if this is the beginning of the millennium when the new heavens and new earth come, I say yeah, if it's not if it's clear here. Then they will live a hundred years and die. It doesn't say there'll be no more death nor sorrow or tears for them in Revelation. It's talking about the bride there, and we will not have any more tears but these people, during the millennium, could have. What about Gog and God coming at the end of the age, or the end of the millennium, thousand years? Do you think there's going to be upset and pain and trouble and maybe some tears at that time when Satan deceives them and some of their family are crying at them as they leave to go battle God at Jerusalem? Don't you think there'll be some upset there? problems, pain, and then God causes them to be destroyed, and maybe friends and relatives back home hear about it, I don't think that's perfect peace for them. Only for those who are the bride of Christ who will not be affected by that, or can control their emotions and not allow themselves to be affected by that. Let's go to Luke 11. Luke 11, and here I want uh, verse, well, let's go to verse 29, Luke eleven twenty nine, and when the people were gathered thick together, he began to say, so there was an audience there, people crowding in thick, uh, he began to say, this is an evil generation, <clears throat> they seek a sign, And there shall no sign be given it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites, so shall also the Son of Man be to this generation. Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days, as explained another place. Christ would be in the grave three days and be resurrected. So that was the sign for that generation and to our generation. Now notice what he says, the queen of the south shall rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation. So he's speaking here of what we read in Revelation 20, a a general resurrection. The queen of the south will be someone who was dead, unconverted. Shall rise up in the, the judgment, or the judgment period is a better way of putting it, because judgment is not an instantaneous, but a thing based on works with the men of this generation. So all those generations would come up together, is what he's saying, and condemn them. For she came from the utmost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, a greater than Solomon is here. So he said, the Queen of Sheba, who knew Solomon, is going to come up at the same time these people standing here are resurrected, and she will condemn them because she knew Solomon. She knew a different generation. And these men standing here are going to have realized by then that there was a greater than Solomon himself. So there are going to be some comparisons made between people of her generation and the generation that stood there, and of course, every other generation since Adam until the return. The men, and he gives another example. The men of Nineveh shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, a greater than Jonah is here. He says, Jonah's going to condemn the people standing here because Nineveh at least listened to Jonah and did repent. And he said, you're not, and I'm greater than Jonah. So if they repented when Jonah preached, why aren't you repenting when I'm telling you to repent? I'm using this because it shows the mix of people who will be in that resurrection. Second resurrection. Let's notice Matthew 22. And 28. A little more indication about the second resurrection. Matthew 22. Now this is the story, uh, back in verse 23, where the Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection. So they tried to trip him up, and they used this story, which we've seen before, where said this woman had a husband, and she had no children by him, and he died, and then, as the law of Moses said, the brother was supposed to take her, and they, they really drew this thing out. Well, what if there were seven brothers, and everyone in order married her after the next brother died, until she had been married to all seven brothers and still didn't have any kids, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? Well, nobody's in the first, because she won't come up then. So he answered it on that basis. Um, Whose wife will she be in the resurrection? Verse 29, Emmanuel answered and said to them, You do err, not knowing the Scriptures, nor the power of God. They didn't know what the Scripture said, Old Testament, nor did they grasp the power of God to resurrect. They had no faith that he had the power to do that. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. Now he's not speaking of the first resurrection, because those people will be the bride of Christ. So he's speaking of people who were unconverted here, just some woman and these alleged brothers, whoever they might have been. It was just a concocted possibility. Well, he said anybody in that category, when they are resurrected, will neither marry or be given in marriage, but be as the angels of God in heaven. That indicates that the angels are sexless and they don't marry. Now, we know there will be children being born, so there will be families in the millennium. There's been no resurrection there. It's just the people that lived over from the tribulation into the millennium, and they will have families and children and live 100 years. So this is clearly speaking of a different time after a resurrection, and it's a general resurrection, just as we saw there in in Luke, about uh, the queen of Sheba and Jonah and the men of Nineveh. So this is where he obviously cuts off the baby protection, as in the great white throne judgment. These are people who have drawn breath before and will be resurrected to have their opportunity at salvation. So there will be a society for a period of time, and it may be a hundred years after all, though not specifically stated as such in Isaiah 65, because the baby and the production and the offspring will not still be being done according to Matthew 22 during that period of time, whereas it is in the millennium. So Isaiah 65 is written for the millennium. I am only extrapolating from that that there's a possibility the great white throne judgment could still be a hundred years, a period of judgment for all those peoples who were resurrected then, but family life in terms of marriage and children would not be during that period of time. So if you're not going to obey God now, do you want to come up in the second resurrection, or would you prefer to live on into the millennium? consider in the millennium, if you live through the tribulation to come, you could still marry, you could still have children, you could still have a regular family. But if you don't obey God now and you die during the tribulation, then you'd come up in the second resurrection, the great white throne judgment, and be like the angels in heaven and not have any marriage. Maybe God will call some of our younger people now. Maybe he won't. Will they survive to live in the millennium if they're obedient children? They'll probably be taken to a place of safety, even though they might not be called and converted because of the obedience of their parents and their obedience to their parents. But if you're a rebellious child and go your way instead of God's way, following the instruction and direction of your parents, Chances are you will not be protected but go into the Great Tribulation. All I can say is good luck there. You might come up in the Great White Throne Judgment. So, just thought I'd lay that out for what it's worth. Of course, if you're obedient and you're protected, so much the better. Then you go into the millennium, no question. That would be the best deal if you're not at the age to be called, converted, and prepared now. There's only so many options. If you're called, the deception is stripped away, and you have your chance at salvation now, you will either be in the first resurrection, the last trump, or you'll be in the lake of fire. If you live through into the millennium, protected or through the tribulation, either one, You would live out your physical life and have your opportunity of salvation then. And if you die or have died from Adam until the the millennium begins, you would come up in the great white throne judgment and have your opportunity to learn the truth, deception stripped away, and prove by maybe a hundred years of life which way you'll go. Those are the—that takes care of everybody, see. Those who have qualified for the first resurrection, those humans who live into the millennium will have their chance then, and then everybody else who has not been converted or lived physically into the millennium are going to be in that general resurrection and have an opportunity to learn and follow the truth at that time. So by the time this plan of salvation or this order of resurrections is done, Everyone who has ever lived will have had one opportunity at salvation. A lot of people don't have it now. They are deceived now. And God did that on purpose so that their chance might come later. If he wanted you in the first resurrection or was going to invite you to that, then you have been called or are being called now, even up to the 11th hour for a few. There's an opportunity to be in the first. If not, hope to live to the millennium. And if you still have not known the truth, your chance will come at that general resurrection. And maybe at that time, those from the millennium and the great white throne judgment will be sorted as to what the judgment will be based on what they did during the millennium or the great white throne judgment. I want to study that out a bit, but that's a, that's a thought in terms of when he sorts them as opposed to judging by the works. I don't know really that we need to go to Ezekiel 37. Uh, that's them bones and bones and dry bones we've sung about. Uh, where it says the whole house of Israel is brought back to physical life, sinews and muscles and everything, uh, reattached to their dry bones, and then the breath of life breathed into them. Uh, we've always said that was probably at the great white throne judgment, that the whole house of Israel, as Paul said, would be saved at that time. A few now, is a part of 144,000, a few that live in the millennium and then reproduce and so on, so a goodly number. But most of those who have been Israelites from Abraham or from Jacob on, uh, and really from Adam on, Adam on as people, have never had a chance. So that is essentially the whole house of Israel. And I think that attaching Ezekiel 37 to Uh, The great white throne judgment and the general resurrection and there at the end of uh, the great white throne judgment at the end of the millennium is probably what Ezekiel 37 is speaking of. However, I think that there is a very good possibility that that is also uh, indicative of people in the end time who are being brought back from spiritual death. In other words, you have the church all falling apart, a third dying of famine and pestilence, lack of word, and then a third dying by the sword, which Tkachas and others have slain a lot of people spiritually, though they still live physically, and have been taken into captivity of the world and Protestantism and gone right back to the swamp that they came out of. Now, will some of those be spiritually renewed from the death and destruction spiritually around us? Some will repent. Zechariah indicates about 30% maybe of the church will repent during tribulation. Now, they they physically die because they took that route rather than repenting now. Well, there is some indication that there will be Life breathed back into them, if you would, spiritually. They may be renewed. They'll repent during that time and then physically die, but save their eternal life. And 10% of the church would be a remnant prior to that that would come to build a temple, and they would be brought back from the captivity that the church has gone into. 10% saved back, and then maybe 30-something percent uh, repenting during the tribulation. So I think that there may be an application of Ezekiel 37 to the church today, which is basically good as dry bones, <laughs> spiritually speaking, but that'll shake and rattle and come back together uh, in repentance of some. But the overall final application of that would be the whole house of Israel because it is a freshly, obviously, resurrection there, sinews and mus- muscles and so on, and the breath of life being breathed back into them. So I think our traditional explanation of Ezekiel 37 certainly applies to the great white throne judgment and all Israel being resurrected and the Gentiles at that point. But it doesn't necessarily point out the Gentiles there so much Uh, but if it has an application to us spiritually now as a church, then any Gentiles who would be included that are physical Gentiles are spiritual Israelites, so they would be included as part of spiritual Israel in the repentance and the renewal spiritually that might come. Uh, But Christ made it plain that the Queen of Sheba, who was a Gentile, And those men of Nineveh, who were Gentiles, will be in that general resurrection. So it's not just Israel, as you might think if you read Ezekiel 37, but it includes all peoples from all over in that general resurrection. Now, I don't think I'll take a lot of time to go there, but Let's back up just for a moment now. We've gone through trumpets, atonement, uh, the feast of tabernacles, and now addressed the great white throne judgment, which finishes the last great day. Oh, I did want to uh, include one more in that. John 7, verse 37 comes to mind. And it ties in with what I just said. In the last day, that great day of the feast... That eighth day, Emmanuel stood and cried, he was in the temple of God when he stood and cried, saying, if any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. He reveals a great deal in that statement. Prior to this, John 6, 44, which is just behind us, maybe I should go back and read it since we're this close, we quote it frequently. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now here he is clearly speaking of this period of time up until the first resurrection, because he says, no man can come except he is called, that the Father draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Well, when is that? That's the first resurrection. So he says, nobody up to that time can come to me except the Father. Call him, open his mind, and he'll be a part of the first resurrection if he responds properly when his judgment is rendered that he could be a part of the bride. Now he's saying something differently here because he's speaking on the last great day of the feast, and the last great day of the feast is symbolic of the great white throne judgment and the second resurrection, the general resurrection, of all the dead who've never had a chance from Adam until that time. And it's not that they have to be called of the Father. He is opening it up to any and everyone. So this is an appropriate statement to make on the last great day of the feast. He said, if any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. Now that ties in, I don't know whether I'm going to quit early or not, with Revelation 22, doesn't it? Because he gives a summary statement here in the Bible in Revelation 22 about him returning and his reward is with him in verse 12, and blessed are they that do his commandments, verse 14, that they may have right to the tree of life, and they enter in through the gates into the city. And you have sinners on the outside who are not allowed inside the city. So there's still human sinners around during that time. Then he makes a statement. I, Emmanuel, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. So he's saying, I sent an angel to give these visions to John. And John is to write them as a witness and an instruction to the churches. There was a specific message to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. And here in the summary statement, he says, This book is written for the churches. I am the red and offspring of David, and the bright and morning star. Speaking of Christ. And the Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, and the Bride. So at this point, Christ and the Bride are married, and they have a statement to make together. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let him that hears say, Come, so spread the word, and let him that is a first come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Now this is a millennial setting, at first, where Christ opens it up to any who are alive at that point. Whosoever will can come. So salvation is open to the whole world during the millennium. Now the Spirit and the Bride, or Christ and the Bride, are also there when the second or general resurrection occurs, and they could make the same statement. So it may be millennial incipiently, but it is also applied later to those in the great white throne judgment. And Christ specifically applied it to the great white throne judgment there in John 7.37 when he said, let anyone who will come and drink of the waters of life. So what I'm saying here is this. It is very limited now. God is only calling so many. And out of those, then he will choose who will be the bride. So it's limited opportunity. The rest of the world is deceived. Satan deceives the whole world, remember. So everybody is deceived except for a few whom he removes the scales from their eyes and lets them hear with their ears. And we here are among those few. So we have a special opportunity when most people are not called, God has for some reason called us, and one of those reasons, because we're weak in base. And being weak and base, we can through his spirit become strong, and we can become noble. We can become, what is a noble? A king and a priest. We can become that. And it is, his to, it is to his glory that he took commoners like us, and transformed us will have by then at least hasn't yet will have by then transformed us and changed us incorruptible or corruptible no more incorruptible and given us opportunity then to be the mother of the millennium now I did not have time really to get into the function. We've only talked about the plan of salvation and the symbolism of that and how we will become the bride of Christ and come down to rule with him a thousand years at the beginning of the millennium. But suddenly, that marriage is going to have scads of kids. Good thing they had a honeymoon for a year first because when they come back to rule the earth and all peoples are put down. See, Christ comes back. I think at this point I can see three times. Do we grasp that? The last trump, he comes, and we rise to meet him in the air. Okay? We go to the Father's throne, the sea of glass, where we are then married. He comes back, with his vesture dipped in blood on a white horse, and wherever with him from the time of the first resurrection. So those thousands who come back with him to make the final judgment on the earth and to put down all peoples are the bride. Jude says he comes back with ten thousands of his saints, 144,000 precisely. So that's his second coming of the end time one, to collect the bride, two, to come back to finish putting down the earth and in judgment make war. Then we will go back with him to bring back the heavenly Jerusalem, the father, the son, the bride, Revelation 21, coming all down together to set up that government. So once, grab the bride, take her up for the marriage and the honeymoon. Second, come back and put down all rebellion and humble everybody that's left. Quick trip back to collect the heavenly Jerusalem, father, son, angels, the bride, and come back to set up the kingdom of God. But there are three different uh things that are done there, are there not? And they come in a different way. So we talk about the second coming of Christ. Well, he was here once to set an example and die and live. Now he has a second coming, but it is parts A, B, and C. I don't think we ever understood that before, did we? But it's clearly delineated Because Revelation 19 and his coming with the saints and blood and, and war is totally different than coming down from heaven as a bride. Well, if we're coming down as a bride and we're with him when he came back here to, to finish off the rebellion and we're ever with him from the first resurrection on, then we had to have gone back up there to be coming down with him again. Can't come back if you haven't been up. What goes up must come down several times it appears. I did not get into the role of the bride during the millennium. I've just now touched on it. But bride and honeymoon no more, because when that New Jerusalem does come down, the honeymoon will be over. It'll be time to get to work. And there'll be all these human beings down here that need to know the way and to walk in it. So, wife and mother is to function during the millennium. When you use the marriage analogy all the way through with the plan of salvation in the holy days of God. Not just kings and priests, but mothers. So then... If we had a few more days, we could go into motherhood and what it takes to be a mother to the world. I would start that, I think, in Proverbs 31, where it describes the proper wife and mother and the kind of bride that he expects and the kind of mother of children we should be. I'm not going there for sake of time, and I said I'm not coming back to church for another week, and I'm not. So we'll leave it at that but let's understand the symbolism there. And if you want to do some further study, or Bible study stale and you don't know what to study next and it's getting boring, start studying wife and mother. There's a good one to show... Now, see, we went through the marriage covenant, the terms and standards he expects of us in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, So that's the standard of conduct that is set. But the intricacies and the details of motherhood and of wifedom show up in an awful lot of different scriptures about our specific duties and how we are to interact with our husband and with our children. So there's a huge study there that could be done that we don't have time to cover in terms of the millennium and the symbolism that it entails, but that is the job and the duty of the 144,000 during the millennium as the bride of Christ, the wife of the Son of God, and her children. Then you can carry that on out if you wish to the great white throne judgment. I don't know whether you'd call us a grandmother by then, because that's the next generation we deal with. You got to deal with this many in the millennium and it expands to where there are probably billions of people again during that thousand years You start out with a smaller family and it grows and you have to learn to deal with it. And then when you've had that experience, comes the great white throne judgment, when there's, what, 60 billion people, they estimate, that have lived from Adam on down, that will come up all at once. I don't know whether we're, well, we won't get old, so Grandma will still have plenty of energy. We'll be able to handle it. I don't know whether it's fair in the analogy to call us a grandmother by then because that's still a a first generation of children that come up that have lived before. So maybe it's still in the role of wife and mother only, but since it is the next generation, that just kind of clicked in my mind as then we're a grandmother to the world but we'll still be very, very much involved, so I think motherhood probably fits the analogy better. And then it says the increase of his government will never end. He gives us no clue what happens beyond the plan of salvation for all peoples, but God is a Father. God loves increase. God likes to share. So considering those characteristics of our Father in heaven, I suspect that he has some plans that may go on beyond us. I don't know how to even begin to imagine what that could be. And it's not necessarily for us to spend a lot of time on or speculate about because, you know, there's only a period of time here that you and I need to be concerned about. That is, from Adam until the end of the great white throne judgment. Our our thinking can stop there. We don't need to consider what might all have happened before Adam and Eve. Whether it was millions of years or a short while or all of that, it may be fun to speculate a bit about, but it means nothing, really. All we're concerned about is from Genesis 1-1 until the invitation to the great white throne judgment in Revelation 22. And really, we don't need to be too concerned beyond the first resurrection. Because we'll either have it made by then or we won't. But he does give us a lot of insight about our children and our relatives and peoples on the earth. And that's valuable for us because it involves our job once we are in the kingdom of God. He gives us something to look forward to, some opportunity, some hope, and some hope for our friends and relatives and people that are now alienated from us. So God gives us that much, even though it isn't, our salvation beyond the last trump but the salvation of our friends and relatives and, and everybody and we will have a great deal to do with them. So speculation before Genesis 1:1 is just that and can be a waste of time. And speculation beyond the great white throne judgment is just that and could be a waste of time. So I don't spend much time at it but I do know that God is giving and loving and sharing, and he has planned at this point on giving opportunity to 60, 70, 80, 100 billion people, to count those that have lived and those that will be born in the millennium. He has given that opportunity to that many people to share and the love, the joy, the peace, the happiness, the security of eternity. What a great, loving, wonderful Father we have. See you next Sabbath.